Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degenia on Talk Shoe. It is Friday, April 15th, 2011. Today I'm going to start a new series. I would like to, um, I pray Yahweh that I'd be allowed to continue it through its completion. I would like to cover all four Gospels in their entirety, and then the book of Acts. After that, I'm considering going back into the letters of Paul and, and doing a more thorough exposition of them than I was able to do with Eli James. That the, um, that the, not, not that I disparaged the work that I did with Eli and Paul. I just felt that some parts were rushed, some parts, um, petty arguments detracted from the substance that I had attempted to, to, to present. Early on, we had a lot of disputes over the divinity of Christ and, and many other simple things, things that most Christians should recognize. Uh, I think that that was a detriment to our work in Paul's epistles. I, I would, I'm really seriously considering redoing them. Eli and I never really covered the Gospels. We covered parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John during the, um, the two seed line series. But that was very incomplete and, and fragmentary. And, and here I would like to, um, Yahweh will uncover the entire gospel, but myself, all four of them, and, and go into all the depths that, that I, I'm able to concerning the translation, the, the differences, the historical relationships, and, and, and the historicity of the gospels. Um, and, and that's what I hope to start tonight. A lot of this is going to be um, prepared. Most of the preparation is going to be from writing I already had, things I've already done, or um, I'll, I'll only cover new ground or, or break new ground when, I'm, when I have to. My notes on Paul and Luke are copious. My, my, my notes, even though they're still unpublished, right? My notes on, on Matthew and Mark are, are not, but I'll be adding to them here as I go along, and hopefully someday I'll be able to write a full commentary on Matthew and Mark. I, I Yahweh willing. The um, first, some Christogenia news. The, the Paul Sensius project at Christogenia.org is moving along. I, I think that Sensius, he was a German writer in the 1930s. All I have to do is correct the Hebrew and Greek um, scanning errors in the English translation where I had already corrected the Hebrew. So that project is just about done. It's a static project. It won't change once the um, the last of the Hebrew and Greek are corrected. So so it's 95% done right now. I finished proofreading all of the German text. Uh, I know that doesn't help any of the English readers here, but that there is an English translation to Sensitius's work. He, he was a German identity writer in the sense that he understood that the 12 that the the german people descended from the 12 tribes he reached some wild conclusions and he stretched quite a bit but he had the core of the story correct and and it's just to show that the british israel people who were trying to claim that the um that, that the Germans were Huns, and, and they were doing that for the sake of the Jewish banksters in, in the city that, that, and, and justifying that their hatred for the German people and their, 
that which was really about economic competition. Well, well, just to show that they did have some opposition in Germany, that some people in Germany were trying to speak out. Paul Sensius was one of them, and and that's sensius.christogenia.org, and and um, Sussex Man, who 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 is um, Sussex Man is also the editor of the New Ensign magazine, and and he's also often in the Euro forums that I do two days a month, and he is the translator of Paul Sensius's work from German into English for that project. The Compare site, the, the Bertrand Compare archive at Christogenia is now completely finished. Uh, it might improve in the future if I ever find any more of um, Bertrand Compare's work that's not on there, and if my technical ability ever gets better, that the site can improve, right? But it's finished. It, it's um, it, it's Clifton and Emmerheiser's transcriptions and and notes. Clifton added a lot of his own notes, and he added a lot of my notes. Not that I made specifically for Compare's work, but just notes from my writing. Where where he can use them to respond to segments of Compare's work, and and Clifton did that, and Clifton added the notes, and and that is now at Compare.Christogenia.org, and that site is finished. It, it's probably not going to be expanded unless I can find other writing of Bertrand Compare's that's not there. I I, I have all of the. Um, original sermons which Gene Snyder had originally transcribed into a book that was available from many Christian identity ministries 15, 20 years ago. It, it, Kingdom Identity still has sells the book, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And, and Clifton had it available for a long time, but he doesn't, I don't think he has it available any longer, but, but it's all on the Internet. And, and it has all of those sermons that were the original Your Heritage book. And, and then there's a smaller booklet entitled Your Heritage that, that um, I also obtained a copy of and posted on that site. So that site's not going to grow anymore, but it is complete. It's, it's a nice-looking site, and, and it's fully searchable. It's probably the first online searchable archive of Bertrand Compare's work. I, I mean, aside from using the Google search engine, right? To, to search a website. It, it has its own built-in search database. You can search for any word down to three letters. Okay, the Gospel of Matthew. The Jews love to insist that the New Testament books, all of them, were originally written in Aramaic. The Jews love to make that insistence. And, and George Lanza does also. And George Lanza he, he's done some good work with Aramaic and Hebrew idioms, but he, he has a personal axe to grind being a, a native. He claims that he's a native Assyrian. He's really an Arab, and, and if you want to just face facts. He, he's really an Arab, and he claims that the all of the Gospels and all of the New Testament writings, except for some of Paul's epistles, of course, he claims they were originally written in Aramaic. And, and they love to insist that Yahshua and his disciples spoke Aramaic primarily. And all this helps them to conceal, and it all helps the Jews to conceal their identity to the general public and to perpetuate their lies. 
But first, let me state that the, the language that the Bible calls Hebrew, many scholars believe was Aramaic. I, I'm not sure if I really want to just buy into that 100%. It, it was probably a Hebrew that was with a lot of Aramaic words. There's a lot of Aramaic words in the book of Daniel and some of the other intertestamental books, there's no doubt, what, which was probably the influence of the, the Babylonian conquest and deportations to 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 Babylon, where they spoke Chaldean, and Chaldean and Aramaic are the same language. And and it's also called Syriac. It's a language very close to Hebrew, but it's not exactly Hebrew. Well, well the, the New Testament writers never used the word Aramaic. The New Testament writers, they called it Hebrew. So, so make of it what you will, that's what they called it. Uh, I can split hairs, but I'm not going to do that here. Not, not tonight. Now, the... Um, there is a preponderance of evidence in the New Testament itself that every book of the New Testament, including the Gospel of Matthew, including Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, was originally penned in Greek. There is also a preponderance of evidence in archaeology that while Hebrew, or, or if you want to admit Aramaic, what was spoken in Jerusalem at the time of Christ Greek was the common language of Palestine. All of the coins of Herod and his successors contained Greek inscriptions and not Aramaic or Hebrew inscriptions. That I have, I have a citation for that. It's an article called Literacy in the Time of Jesus, Biblical Archaeology Review, July, August 2003, page 36. And most of the inscriptions of the period in, in first century Palestine, are in Greek and no other language. Page 25 of that same biblical archaeology review can be used as a citation for that. Dozens, literally dozens, of second and third century papyri had been found by archaeologists containing copies of the New Testament books in Greek. I'd say there's probably about a hundred significant papyri or papyri fragments found by archaeologists in Greek, which are recorded in the NA-27 alone, the Nesvi-Aland Novum Testamentum Grecae 27th edition contains citations from approximately a hundred papyri of, of all separate writings some of them are only one verse. Some of them are nearly complete New Testaments. So some of them, I mean, papyri number 46, it's known as, it's in the Chester Beatty Library. And, and um, that there's two of them. There's papyri 46 and papyri 47, I think it is. One of them's in the Chester Beatty Library in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, at the University of Michigan. The other one is at a Chester Beatty Library. I guess Chester Beatty was a pretty magnanimous fellow. Huh? Library in Dublin, Ireland. And, and those papyri contain almost all of the books of the epistles of Paul. There are several significant papyri, such as those, with large amounts of the New Testament writing. And, and there are many, there's at least 100 fragments that, that date back to the earliest earliest portions of the Christian era in Greek. But there aren't any 
that there aren't any second or third century papyri that I've ever seen or, or that I've ever read of in archaeology which had been found that, that were written in Aramaic. The earliest Aramaic versions that we know of date to the third or fourth centuries A.D. of, of the New Testament, and they are proven to have been translated from Greek into Aramaic. That, that's explained in the introduction to Nestle Aland's Novum Testamentum Grecae on pages 65 and six, through 68. Aside from this, there's also a preponderance of evidence in the Greek language itself and the variations which occur across all known ancient Greek copies, that Greek was the original language of the gospel. And so surely Isaiah 28.11 was fulfilled, that he would speak to us in another tongue. And there is no other language which these Greek manuscripts could have been translated from. There is also the fact that so many of the quotes made from the Old Testament in the New are actually are almost verbatim from, from the Greek of the Septuagint, which existed in, in the 3rd century B.C. It, it seems to me, and, and I'll give a couple of examples, there's probably about 17 different forms of the Greek verb to eat. And, and if you wrote a sentence in Aramaic and floated, or, floated it around Palestine for 200 years and various people translated that sentence into, um, into Greek, I'm sure that if 200 people translated that sentence into Greek, there might be six different verbs, meaning to eat, that each person chose to translate your verb into. And, and when you look at the New Testament, so much of the text is exactly the same across all the known manuscripts, or, or very close across all the known manuscripts. There's no way that there could have been Aramaic originals of a New Testament floating around first century Palestine and being translated by diverse peoples into Greek, especially in a, in a religion that, that was excoriated, that, that was being persecuted by the Jews, and, and couldn't come out of the closet, so to speak. It, it was an underground religion, Christianity, for almost 300 years. So, so we would have probably a hundred times the variations in the Greek text that we do, if indeed the Greek texts represent translations of an Aramaic original. There's no way that the Greek, test, Greek New Testament was originally written in Aramaic. It was all originally written in Hebrew, even Matthew's Gospel and even Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews. Now, there may have been a Hebrew copy of Matthew's Gospel, and, and we don't know if it was or not. A lot of people still insist it was written in, in, in Aramaic. But even with that, it's fully evident that Matthew's Gospel was originally penned in Greek, even if Matthew originally also penned an Aramaic copy. And, and we have no proof of that, because the Aramaic copies of Scripture are all rather late. 
Matthew himself was a tax collector. Matthew 9, 9, Mark 10, 3, Mark 3, 18. I'm sorry, Matthew 10, 3, Mark 3, 18, Luke 6, 15, and Acts 1, 13. We see from Acts 1, 13 that Matthew was with Yahshua Christ almost from the beginning, from where he's met in Matthew 9, 9. And, and through Acts 1, 13, Matthew is still there. Matthew is only mentioned five times in Scripture, and he's only mentioned, he, he never says or does anything. There's never any... Um, and any action on his part that's recorded in the scripture, he's only mentioned five times, and he's a quiet apostle. I gather he's um, one of the one one of the witnesses in the background. I have no doubt that the Gospel of Matthew is not it is um, is this Matthew. I'm sure that it is. That there's no reason to doubt it. And and that's it. He, he's a tax collector. That leads me to believe, since in the ancient world. It was so common for men over many generations to follow the vocation of their fathers. I always wondered that Matthew was a Levite because he was a tax collector and, and he would have naturally had the occupation of his ancestors. But that didn't always hold true, that men, that, that men passed their occupations down over that many generations. It, it, it very often held true that the same occupation would stay in a family like that for centuries, but it didn't always hold true. Okay, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A book of descent of Joshua Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Of descent is the word genesios. The word means race. The very first use of this word in the New Testament, in the very first verse, proves that the usage of this and related words, genos and genea, throughout the rest of Scripture, mean race. Genesios here has to be race or descent. It can be descent, but it can be descent because it means race. And, and that's because it's talking about all of the ancestors of Christ. And it can't possibly mean a generation, as church people today insist that the word means, of all the men living at one particular point in time. Because all of the ancestors of Christ that this is describing certainly did not live at the same time. And, and it's, it's the first verse in the, in, in the New Testament tells us what genesios means. And, and I'm going to read some definitions from Liddell and Scott real quick. I'll, I'll truncate them. Let's look at genea, and, and that appears often in Scripture, and that means race, stock, or family. That's the first definition. That's what it means. Sometimes it can mean descent. Sometimes it can mean birth, and sometimes it can mean kind. But the racial connotation should never be taken out of the word. Now, on occasion, it can mean a generation. But as we use the term generation, there's no doubt that on occasion it can mean that in certain contexts. However, when it means a generation, it only means a generation of a particular race 
who were all alive at one time. It does not mean all the people in the world, all the people on the planet who were alive at one time. The word never uses its ra- loses its racial connotation. Genesios only appears in the Bible a couple of times. I think it's five times it appears in the Bible. This is the first, and it also means, according to Liddell and Scott, if, if I could find it here, I lost my place. It, it, it's the um, it's the possessive form or, or the genitive form of genesis, and it means an origin, a source, a productive cause, a beginning in some instances. That's why we have the book named Genesis. A manner of birth, race, or descent. And that's what it means here. The descent or the race of Yahshua Christ, the son of David. The Greeks used the word race in a much narrower manner that we do. And, and there's a historic reason for that. To the Greeks, a race was a subdivision of a nation. A, a race was what one clan, you, you might say, over many centuries you, or over a long period of time, in a nation. A denos was a subdivision of an ethnos. But in in more modern history, we use the word differently, and here's the historic reason. Because we have it in our experience, in our direct historical experience, that one race, the Saxon people, became many nations. So we have an opposite view of the word than the ancient Greeks did. And, and that's the way I, I look at their use of that word. Now, the... Um, It, it certainly can't be imagined here that all the ancestors of Christ lived at the same time. Of course, they didn't. So this word generation, this verse reveals that when the King James translators wrote generation, they had race on their mind. There's no doubt, just from this first verse in the New Testament. And that's the first place people should go in his argument over the meaning of the word generation. Just come right here. And, and tell your opponent that all the ancestors of Christ were not alive at once, so a generation must mean a race. That, that's it. Case closed. A book of descent of Joshua Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Then Judah begot Perez and Zarah. Notice how Pharez and Zara are mentioned and not Er, Onan, or Salah. Yet, Matthew thought it important enough to, to mention Zara, even though Zara was not the direct ancestor of Christ, only Pharez was. Then Judah begot Pharez and Zara from of Tamar. And Pharez begot Hezram, and Hezram begot Aram. And Aram begot Aminadab. And Amidadad begot Nathan, and Nathan begot Salmon. Then Salmon begot Boaz from of Rechab. And Boaz begot Yobed, or Jobed, from of Ruth. And Yobed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. There's three women mentioned here. 
Tamar. And a lot of people like to say that Tamar was a whore because she played the whore to seduce Judah and Rahab. And a lot of people like to say that Rahab was a whore because, well, the translations in English call her a whore. It's that simple. And there's Ruth. And the mainstream Christians love to point out that Ruth is a Moabite. And in truth, Tamar is not a whore. And Rahab is not a whore. And Ruth was not a Moabite. All of these women are in one way or another slandered by many of the mainstream theologians and commentators. And, and the, even people that claim to be Christian identity follow them in that slander, well, which is absolutely crazy. I believe that Yahweh, the author of life, history, and language, even before all things come to pass, certainly allowed the scribes in his permissive will to set traps for us, whether they knew it or not, to see whether or not we would believe that Yahweh is true to his word. Tamar is called a whore by many, and so is Rahab. Ruth is called a Moabite, and likewise, as we'll see in a little bit, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who is called the Hittite, is esteemed to be either a Hittite herself, which would make David a race mixer and Yahweh a hypocrite, or, if not, that then her husband is claimed to be a Hittite, and that would make Bathsheba a race mixer and Yahweh a hypocrite. Fortunately for us, our God is true, and everything is not what it seems. I believe that these traps are indeed laid to separate those who truly study the word of Yahweh with an open heart from the surface readers of Scripture who are quick to make accusations, and thereby they justify their own fornicating immorality and alien-embracing tendencies. Let's read the story of Rahab. Joshua chapter 2, verses, verses 1 through 24. Yes, I'm going to read them. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee which are entered into thine house, for they come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wished not whence they were. I do not know where they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. Of course, she had them hidden on the roof. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she laid in order upon 
the roof. Now, now this is um, a revealing verse right here. The stalks of flax, which she laid in order upon the roof. She, she was being methodical about how she laid out the flax on the roof of her house, and we'll get back to that idea. And the men pursued after them by the way to Jordan unto the fords, or, or that's the river crossing. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land faint or melt because of you. For you've heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. When you came out of Egypt, and what he did to the two kings of the Amorites, that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, for Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Rahab is shown to be a very pious woman. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by Yahweh, since I have shown you kindness, that ye will also show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token. And that ye will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our life be yours, if you utter not this our business, and it shall be that when Yahweh has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord through the window. For her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. Now, now let me say real quick that um, a lot of the ancient cities, the, the walls of the cities were, were, um, had homes, had buildings built into them. And, and sometimes those buildings would have windows that opened to the outside, even though they were privately owned. And that's the exact same way that Paul, much later, escaped from Damascus when he was let down by a basket through a window, if you remember that story in the Acts of the Apostles. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned, and afterward you may go your way. And the men said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath which you, thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt find this line of scarlet thread in the window. Sorry, my screen is actually corrupt. And now I've lost my place, of course. Thou shalt bind this t- line of scarlet thread in a window, which thou didst let us down by. 
And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thine house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. He'll be responsible for his own harm. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be upon our heads, if any man be upon him. And if thou utter this our own business, then we will be quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet lying in the window. And they went and came unto the mountains and abode there three days, until the pursuers were returned. And the pursuers sought them throughout all the way, but found them not. So the two men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all things that befell them. And they said unto Joshua, Truly Yahweh has delivered into our hands all the land, for even all of the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. They were all afraid of the invading Hebrews. Now, the rest of the story is, it is um, well, most of us should, I hope, know it. Rahab and her family survive the destruction of Jericho. And Rahab goes on to marry one of the chief men of the tribe of Judah and become one of the ancestors of Christ. Rahab had stalks of flax, which she methodically arranged on the roof of her house. Rahab had a house. In fact, she, she was pretty much, it seems to me, the main breadwinner of the house. The house is on the wall of the city, where people coming in and out of the city would see this house first. The house was not a whorehouse because her family lived in it with her. The house was an inn. Rahab was an innkeeper. That's why she needed stalks of flax. She had to make linen for her inn. That's why the men chose to go to Rahab's house as soon as they got into the city. It would be natural for strangers coming into the city to go to an inn. It would be entirely natural. That's the first place most strangers would go in the desert when they came into a city. They would look to the inn to have a meal. That's exactly what went on here. These were amongst the most pious of the men of Israel. They were especially picked by Joshua for the for the task at hand, and they weren't going to goof off with some whore. There are two words in Hebrew, zun and zona, and they're spelled very similarly. There's only a one-letter difference, I believe. And one of them is used of a woman who sells herself. And the other one can be used of a woman in trade. The Greek word porne, pornes, 
is the word used for a woman who is a harlot. But the Greek word pornes is related to a Greek word pornuo, which is a verb, and, and several other nouns related to it. And that word means to engage in merchandising or traffic. And it would be very natural to use those words of a woman who kept an inn. It seems to me, and whether the confusion was with the Septuagint translators, or if the, the, the usage in the 3rd century B.C. was possibly common in some Greek dialects, but it seems to me that Rachel was an innkeeper, and the Septuagint translators, or after the time of the Septuagint translators, the word for innkeeper was confused with the word for whore. Clifton wrote a paper on this very passage. I think it's Watchman's Teaching Letter number 121, if I'm not mistaken. And, and he describes all of this in great detail. All of the circumstances in Joshua chapter 2 indicate that Rahab was an innkeeper, not a whore. The language in both the Hebrew and the Greek could allow for a slight confusion and that Rahab was an innkeeper and not a whore. Flavius Josephus, the historian, he didn't know how to write Greek until after he wrote his um, Wars of the Judeans in Aramaic. He spoke Greek, but he had to learn how to write it so that he could write a Greek translation of it himself, which he did. And he worked from Hebrew copies of Scripture, Obviously, Hebrew copies of Scripture that are a hell of a lot better than the Masoretic text we have today. And Flavius Josephus never mentions that Rahab is a whore. To her, he's all, she's always an innkeeper. He, he naturally states that she is an innkeeper, in Greek, of course. So it seems to me that Flavius Josephus read his Hebrew copy of the Scripture, and he came to the conclusion that Rahab was an innkeeper. Yahweh is not mocked. I would prefer to believe that the apostles simply followed the Septuagint and that possibly the apostles understood the word pornace could also include a woman who is engaged in trade other than her body. Because the word pornace, and I understand that we get our word pornography from it, but the word pornace is related to a group of words that first mean trade and only then means a woman's trade of her own body. So, so prostitution is a secondary idea there. It's not the, the original idea. Now, now it also is often translated fornication in certain contexts in, in, the, in the New Testament, and that's because... In certain contexts, the word surely had a sexual meaning. But the word evolved into a sexual meaning. Its original meaning it is 
related to those words that have to do with merchandise. And yes, prostitution was considered a form of illicit sex in the ancient world, even though it was also engaged in. But Rahab was an innkeeper. She was not a whore. Now, the second woman I would like to discuss is Tamar. Neither was Tamar a whore. Many esteemed Tamar to have been a whore. If that were truly the case, the last person she may have chosen to turn her first trick would have been Judah, her father-in-law. Tamar simply wanted what she was entitled to. Women relied upon having children in the ancient world, especially single women, widows, would want a male child, or at least one, in order that, having raised a male child, the children, the male child, would in turn, after reaching manhood, look after his mother in her old age. That was only natural. Male children in the ancient world were a woman's form of social security check because her brothers were going to get the inheritance. Her brothers were going to inherit the family farm, the family estate, and she would be left with nothing if she didn't have a husband and raise a family. So Tamar had it coming to her. We learn in the Bible that Judah withheld after two of his sons died, attempting Tamar. He withheld the third one. And I'm going to read Genesis 38, verses 6 through 30. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn. Now, we know that Er's a Canaanite. We know he's no good. And, and Judah did what he did. And Judah's a sinner. And, and so, are, so are all of us. That's just the way it is. And, and we could recognize Judah's sin. That's fine. Uh, I hope we recognize our own, too. But Judah was, no doubt, a sinner. And Er was, no doubt, a Canaanite. And so were all three of Judah's sons before Tamar came along. Without Tamar, we would have no tribe of Judah. And Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, his second son, and this is after the Hebrew law, right? Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. Here's the deal. If Onan has a child raised up for his brother, that child gets the double portion of the inheritance that the oldest son expects. If there's no child as a substitute for heir, Onan's older brother, then Onan gets the double portion of the inheritance. So Onan's acting out of greed here, right? And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, that he would only get a secondary portion of the inheritance. And it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased Yahweh, wherefore Yahweh slew him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shalah my son be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. 
And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. The Canaanite, the bitch that Judah married. And Judah was comforted and went up into his own sheep shearers to Timnath. And his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goes up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. Now, now right there, Tamar is, is um, upset that Judah is not fulfilling that the um well, well it was the tradition even at the time although it wasn't yet written in the law because the law wasn't given at Sinai yet however the children of Israel had this this same tradition and and these laws of Yahweh are timeless they've always been there they just weren't codified through Moses Tamar expected Shoah for for a husband and she had that coming, and Judah withheld him. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come into thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Will thou give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And he said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. Now, now the signet, the, the bracelets are, are just jewelry. They would be recognizable, but they were just jewelry. The staff is just an out. A, a, it, it has no real meaning in in um in ancient contract law, but the signet is significant because the signet is what they signed contracts with. And Judah giving up his signet that that would be important because um the the signet was used to make an impression. It, it was unique and it was used to make an impression. It, it was almost like your signature. That's what it was. It was almost like Tamar took Judah's signature and possessed it until Judah would send a kid from the flock. That, that's a very significant item that Judah just gave up for a little sex. And, and that shows just how far sexual incontinence can bring a man down. The first time it brought Judah down, it was because he married a Canaanite. Well, which was a huge moral lapse. The second time, it was with this prostitute he didn't even know was his own daughter-in-law. And, and he's willing to give up his signature for it, which is just nuts. <laughs> and she arose and went away and laid by her, and laid by her veil from her. Oh, okay, that's confusing language. I'm sorry. And put on the garments of her widowhood. In the ancient world, they actually wore clothes signifying their station in life. It's very common in Roman Greece also. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. The whore was gone. 
Then he asked the men of the place, saying, where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. Tamar only set a trap for Judah, and Yahweh knew that Judah would fall for it. Yahweh knew that Judah was sexually incontinent, that he was weak. Put a hold on the corner, Judah's going to go for it. How many of our men do that today <laughs> at the drop of a hat? And Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be ashamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found it. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. Three months she was showing already. And Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. Under the law, Tamar belonged to Judah's family. But under the law, Judah also was obliged to give Tamar the next son, which is Shelah. Now, Judah is playing the hypocrite because he didn't fulfill the law, but he wants to judge Tamar by the law. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose... These are, am I, with child. And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and bracelets and staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because that I gave her not to Shalah, my son, and he knew her again no more. Judah was married to Tamar at that point. He realized it. And, and the marriage is a legitimate marriage. In the eyes of God, because so far as we know, neither Onan nor Ur ever actually consummated the act of marriage with Tamar. It was never actually completed which happens upon copulation. Er pulled out. Er died and Onan pulled out. I'm sorry. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, this came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, how hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore she called his name Therese. Therese actually comes from the Hebrew word which, mean, which means to part. And, and I'm sure that's where we get our English word. And, and the idea of separation, parats, part, Fares is really parats, P-A-R-A-T, P-A-R-E-T-S. And afterwards came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. So Zara was born second. And that scarlet thread seems to me 
It may very well be the reason why Rahab also used the scarlet thread as a sign, because she was actually of the tribe of Judah. Now, that's only conjectural, but I don't think that these symbols in the Bible are entirely without meaning. They are all used for a reason, even if we don't always know the reason. There were many of the tribe, many people of the tribes of Israel were strewn throughout the Egyptian empire from even before the time of the captivity of the children of Israel in Egypt. Egypt was a great empire for a long time, for several generations, before they were made slaves. The Hebrews were guests in Egypt, and it spread throughout the Egyptian empire. It's very plausible that Rahab, the pious woman that she was, was also of the tribe of Zarahutra. That leads me to Ruth. Ruth was clearly a Moabite by geography and not by race. The phrase found at Ruth 1.16, which states, and thy God, my God, may just as easily be interpreted and just as fairly be interpreted, and thy judges, my judges. In other words, Ruth would leave the land of Moab, where she dwelt, where the children of Israel inhabited. The children of Israel had already inhabited that land for over 300 years. They inhabited the land of Moab. Ruth would leave that and leave her judges, leave her civic administration for the people of Judah and go back to Judah with Naomi, her mother-in-law. That's what she's saying there. And it's just as legitimate a translation. One thing that I think all commentators miss about Ruth and, and the Ruth account is this. At Ruth 4.1, we see that there was another kinsman closer to Naomi in blood whose turn it was before Boaz to redeem Ruth. However, his personal circumstances forbid him from doing so. He could not afford to redeem Ruth, to take Ruth as a wife and raise up seed to his kin, which we see is the same situation that, that Judah was in with Tamar, and Tamar was in, right? And, and Ruth's husband, Naomi's son, died, and, and Ruth had no children, and both Naomi's sons died. So Ruth came back with Naomi to Judah to be redeemed by one of Naomi's kinsmen. It's kinsman redemption. And you cannot ask a man to break the law of Yahweh to redeem somebody. You have no obligation to break Yahweh's law to redeem somebody. Now, if you married a negress and you died without issue, your brother, because you married an alien, your brother isn't obliged to uphold the law of the kinsman redeemer. You can't redeem anybody unless they're kinsmen. You can't 
You, you can't violate the law against adultery and uphold the law of the kings and redeemer. You can't be forced to break a law of Yahweh with another law, especially one as serious as, as the, the, um, the law against adultery. And adultery in the Old Testament does mean race mixing. So this other kinsman, who could not afford to de- redeem Ruth, he underwent a great reproach because he could not fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer. And we see at Ruth chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi? Thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou, talking to Boaz, my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. The kinsman just couldn't do it. Now, this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, and for to confirm all things. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee, so he drew off his shoe. To fully understand what's going on here in Ruth chapter 4, we must go back to Deuteronomy Chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. If brethren dwell together, and one of them die and has no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without, meaning outside, unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. In other words, the duty of kinsman redemption. And this was also the the same situation with Tamar. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. This is the situation which the first in line, that that man that was first in line before Boaz to redeem Ruth, this is the situation he was in. Then the elders of his city shall call him, And speak unto him. And if he stands to it and says, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face. And shall answer and say, So shall it be done. Unto a man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that has his shoe loose. 
So we see that it is a, it is a public and open disgrace for a man to shirk the responsibility of kinsman redeemer. Yet it is wholly evident from Ruth chapter 4 that these men were operating under the law and they were citing the law. This man could have easily avoided such a disgrace if Ruth were a Moabitess by her race. All he would have had to do was cite Deuteronomy 23.3. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter. into the congregation of Yahweh, period. Even to their tenth generation, they shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever. This clearly proves that Ruth was truly an Israelite living in the land of Moab. It's that simple. I think that there are two uh, out of the four Women, and, and I'm counting Uriah the Hittite as a woman. I'm, I'm sorry, it really pertains to Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Out of the four women in this account that are mentioned, who, whose names are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, two of them have cases concerning kinsman redemption. And I really believe... that Yahweh did that by design. Because he wants us to go back into that Old Testament and study kinsman redemption. Because that's what Yahshua Christ is all is all about. That's what he's doing. Dying is Yahweh on the cross so that he could redeem us for himself. He is our kinsman redeemer. If you're not his kinsman, you have no redemption in his blood, period. Many esteem Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, to have been a Hittite herself. And if not, to have been an adulteress because she was married to a Hittite. Was Uriah really a Hittite? The word Hittite, if you open up Strong's Concordance, I'm sorry I didn't take the numbers down. The word Hittite, or Kitty, C-H-I-T-T-I-Y in English, According to Strong's Concordance, is indeed derived from the name Heth, the Canaanite, son of Canaan. And it was used to describe his descendants. But that's because Heth was named fearsome. That's what Hittite, that, that's what Keth means. It's just that this is a coincidence because Heth was named after the word. And therefore his descendants were called Hittites. Because Heth was named after a word meaning fear. The word Hittite or Kitty is identical to a form of the word Kittith, which means fear. And that can be seen right in Strong's Concordance. 
a person who was fearsome would therefore be described as a Hittite. In 2 Samuel, chapter 23, verse 1, Uriah the Hittite is listed as one of the 37 mighty men whom David had, even after he died, he was listed in that manner. All of the biblical testimony concerning Uriah proves that he was anything but an accursed Hittite, that he was always a just and faithful servant of David. The account of his attitude and his behavior at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 6 through 11, are especially noteworthy. Having died on the front lines of battle, Uriah surely lived up to his epithet once it is properly interpreted. He should have been called, and the word should have been translated in the King James Version, Uriah the Terrible, or Uriah the Fearsome as great warriors are often given such names. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thine house and wash thine feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king, a dinner. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, meaning David, and went not down to his house. And when David, they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? When did when that? Why then did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab, Joab was the captain, and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife, as thou livest and as thy soul liveth? I will not do this thing. In other words, Uriah would not have anything to do with luxury or pleasure because the army was still in the field. Uriah didn't think it was proper. He was a sound and honorable man. He was a fearsome warrior, and he was not a Hittite by race. The King James translators failed terribly by not realizing the epithet given to a warrior and translating it correctly. Okay, so that's my defense of um, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. They weren't whores. They weren't race mixers. 
There are a lot of evil kings in the genealogy of Christ. But they weren't whores and race mixers in the parentage of Christ. The apostles were not handed the genealogy of Christ by by an angel. It just didn't happen. Neither were they recited to by Yahweh himself or by Yahshua. The Gospels were written by human eyewitnesses in the case of Matthew and John or the recorders of eyewitnesses in the case of Luke and Mark. They themselves had to rely on very incomplete records in order to chronicle the events surrounding the coming of the Christ in perspective with Hebrew history. These records were pieced together as best as their writers could do so. They were probably pieced together, at least in part, from unofficial sources, since Herod had long before destroyed the genealogies in the temple, and and that's recorded by Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history, quoting from earlier sources, and even the Talmud admits that at Kedushin 75a. And since the Christian gospel writers were, as it is apparent, not welcome around the public offices anyway, even if they could investigate the records, they certainly didn't employ them. There are as many marvels about Scripture that prove that God is true, but the Gospels and the ancient chronicles which the Gospel writers relied upon are far from complete. And here I will give an example of that. From the time of Jacob, we have in the genealogy of Christ, Pharez, Hezron, Aram, Aminadab, and then Nashan. Nashan was the captain of the men of Judah in the days of the Exodus. He's the one that married Rahab, the woman who was not a whore, the innkeeper. He's mentioned at Numbers chapter 1, verse 7, and, and several other times in the book of Numbers. The Bible records only about eight generations of the children of Israel in Egypt. That's it. This is also evident in the genealogy of Moses. So so we see from the genealogy of Christ, which I just gave, there's Jacob, there's Pharez, there's Hezron, Aram, Aminadab, and Nashan. Jacob went into Egypt. Nashan came out of Egypt. And right there we only have six generations. Nashan being a chief of the sons of the tribe of the tribe of Judah, as we see at Numbers one seven, then we can imagine that he was well into his years of maturity. He was probably fifty or sixty years old to be a chief, and and there was probably a generation or two at least after him. So the Bible really only records eight generations of the children of Israel in Egypt. This is also evident in the genealogy of Moses, where we see the descent recorded from Levi to Kohath to Amram 
to Moses. And Moses was about 80 years old at the Exodus, and therefore at least three generations were born after him by that time. So again, we have eight generations of the children of Israel in Egypt. But Paul tells us, and Paul surely seems to be accurate, that it was 430 years from the call of Abraham to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. That's attested to by Paul at Galatians 3.17. Upon an inspection of Scripture, we will find that much of this 430 years, from the call of Abraham to the giving of the law, is taken up in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob was very old when he went to Egypt. Abraham was 75 years old at the time of his calling by Yahweh to go to the land of Canaan. That's Genesis 12:4. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Isaac was 60 years old when Jacob was born. That's Genesis 25:26, chapter 25, verse 26. And Jacob was 130 years old when he went before the Pharaoh in Egypt. That's Genesis 47:9, chapter 47, verse 9. Kohath the grandfather of Moses, was listed among those descendants of Jacob who were with Jacob upon his entering Egypt. That's Genesis chapter 46, verse 11. This alone, from the time of the call of Abraham to the time that Jacob appears before Pharaoh, accounts for 215 of the 430 years between the call of Abraham and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. At the time of the Exodus, Nashon is an elder, a chief of Judah. So if we have an estimated seven generations, say, from the sons of Jacob to the time of the Exodus, not counting Jacob himself, right? We see that that could encompass no more than 215 years the entire time of the sojourn in Egypt. Yet the Gospel of Matthew records only five generations from Nashon all the way to David, a span of over 400 years. So it records seven generations in 215 years during the sojourn in Egypt. But Matthew's gospel only, and Matthew's gospel only records five generations from the Exodus all the way to the time of David, over 400 years. It gives us Nashan, the chief of the children of Judah, mentioned in the Exodus and in Numbers chapter 1 7. Then it gives us Salmon. Then it gives us Boaz, then Jobed, then Jesse, and then David. The book of Ruth has that same genealogy, and it doesn't give us any more than Matthew's gospel. The lifespan of men is gleaned from Scripture at the time of the judges period does not allow that there were only so few generations from Nashon to David. The internal evidence of the book of Judges and a general understanding of the history of the period prove that it had to be over 400 years from the time of the Exodus to the time of David. 
And the testimony in Acts chapter 13, verse 20, gives us the span as 450 years. It is perfectly clear that there must be generations which are missing from the records in the genealogy of David, and they were missing long before the time of Christ. That's just the way it is. The Old Testament records are far from complete. No matter what we want to think about it. Of course, I would be cursed right now by the King James only crowd. Many people evidently think that the sojourn in Egypt alone was 400 years. But we have just seen, we have seen it proven that it was only 215 years, and it's proven by Scripture. As an aside, many people scoffed that the children of Israel could have grown from 76 people into so many hundreds of thousands of people in only a little over two years. Do the math. If you start with 35 couples, and each couple has only seven children in a 20-year reproductive period, the end result, after 160 years and eight generations, is over 1.5 million people. After 200 years and 10 generations, it is over 19.3 million people. Imagine how many white people would be in the world today if half of us were not sexual miscreants for the past four or five generations. Then David begot Solomon from the wife of Uriah. Urias in Greek. And Solomon begot Roboam, and Roboam begot Abia, and Abia begot Asaph, and Asaph begot Josaphat, and Josaphat begot Yoram, and Yoram begot Ozias, and Ozias begot Joasim, and Joasim begot Achaz, and Achaz begot Hezekiah. I apologize for using the Greek pronunciations rather than the familiar ones from the King James Version. Here in this section of Scripture, we also have several missing generations. The first of which is Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, the Yoram of this list in verse 8. His mother was Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab. Many claim that Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab by Jezebel, but that is simply not true. While there is no explicit mention of Athaliah's mother, a close inspection of Scripture reveals that Athaliah was certainly the daughter of Ahab by a wife other than Jezebel. Jezebel did not become Ahab's wife until rather late in his life, and Ahab had 70 sons and many daughters by many different wives. Two of Ahab's sons by Jezebel did become kings in Israel. They did not rule long, only a couple of years between them. However, Athaliah was wicked nonetheless, and she tried to destroy all of the sons of the royal household of Judah upon Ahaziah's death. 
But Joash, the son of Ahaziah, was preserved. Athaliah tried to reign herself as a queen, but she was slain, and Joash took the throne by the age of seven. Joash and his son, Amaziah, are also missing in Matthew's genealogy, which picks up again with the son of Amaziah, which was Uzziah, the Ozias of verse 8 here in Matthew. So we see that while Matthew goes from Jehoram straight to Uzziah, the Old Testament takes us from Jehoram to Ahaziah to Joash to Amaziah to Uzziah. And three generations are wanting in Matthew's genealogy. Joram is Uzziah's great-great-grandfather. Where it says, Joram begot Uzziah, or Joram begot Uzziah, Joram is really his great-great-grandfather. Verse 10. Then Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Amos. And Amos begot Josias. And Josias, or Josiah in the Old Testament, begot Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the sojourn in Babylon. Jehoiakim is another missing generation in Matthew's genealogy, who by all Old Testament accounts is the father of Jeconiah. An interesting fact about Jehoiakim is that he was anointed king upon the death of Josiah, his father, by the Egyptian pharaoh Necho, after Necho captured his older brother, Jehoahaz, who would see 2 Kings chapter 23. Yet here again, well, one thing's evident in these scriptures, that the scripture has no problem reckoning a son when the son is actually a grandson. For Josiah was the grandfather of Jeconiah. Out of all the kings of Judah, only Josiah did well. All the other kings of Judah after David did evil in the sight of the Lord, as the King James Version likes to put it. Of Josiah, it was said that he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh. And he walked in all the ways of David his father, and he turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. He walked a straight line. Yet Josiah was only eight years old when he began to reign, and he lived only 31 years as king. He died at 39 years old against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt in a battle appropriately at Megiddo. I believe there's a lesson in the story of Josiah. First, he may be contrasted to his evil ancestor, Hezekiah. While Josiah did well, he did right in the eyes of Yahweh. He was taken at a young age. Hezekiah did nothing but evil, and when he got sick, he was given a space of 15 years longer to live after he repented and turned to Yahweh. I believe that the evil, I believe the evil, went, the evil people among us, when and if they repent, are given time to be tested of their repentance. Then again, Josiah doing well may have been taken by, taken by Yahweh at a young age because the people did not deserve such an excellent ruler. Josiah forced them to clean up their act. Look at America today and understand that our people 
get exactly the government they deserve, just like ancient Israel. A wicked, idolatrous people do not deserve a fair and good government. It's that simple. That's the teaching of Scripture. Now, Jeconiah, the man who was king, when he with the remnant of Jerusalem had all been taken to Babylon, he was cursed. And here we see him in the genealogy of Christ. We see in Jeremiah, chapter 22, verse 28, quote, Is this man, Coniah, meaning Jeconiah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein there is no pleasure? O earth, 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 hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh, write ye this man childless. A man shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. But Jeconiah did indeed have sons. Yahweh did not mean childless Literally, but rather allegorically, that they would never make anything of themselves, even though they are from the line of the kings of Judah. The sons of Jeconiah obviously survived to return to Judea, but none of them ever ruled again. The Maccabees that ruled over Judea for so long in the intertestamental period, they were Levites. They were a family of the high priests who became the civil rulers of the nation until they were usurped by Herod and his Edomite kin. Matthew provides sufficient genealogical evidence to show that Yahshua Christ indeed stood in line and inherited the rightful claim to rule from Joseph, his lawful father, but not his natural father. If one thinks about this, this is exactly the same way in which the children of Cain came to claim the inheritance of Adam long before time in the Garden of Eden. In fact, all of the circumstances of the birth of Christ mirror those of the birth of Cain, which caused the need for the Christ, the creation of Cain caused a need for the redemption of our race. When Adam accepted Eve, he accepted Cain in her womb, and Cain became his legal firstborn heir. When Joseph acceded to the instructions of the angel and accepted Mary, he accepted Christ in her womb as his firstborn heir. Therefore, Yahshua Christ while not the natural son of Joseph, inherits, stands in line to inherit the throne of David through Joseph. Yahshua Christ can sit on that throne because he is not technically of the seed of the cursed Jeconiah. Getting back to the idea of the birth of Christ mirroring the circumstances of the birth of Cain. This is from the lost books of the Bible and the forgotten books of Eden from an ancient apocryphal writing called the Protoevangelion. It's not canonical, 
However, it is close to 2,000 years old. There's little doubt about that. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And when her sixth month was come, Joseph returned from his building houses abroad, which was his trade. So we have the, the lawful heir to the king of the throne of Judah building houses for a living, right? And entering into the house, he found the virgin grown big. Then smiting upon his face, he said, With what face can I look up to Yahweh my God, or what shall I say concerning this young woman? For I received her a virgin out of the temple of Yahweh my God, and have not preserved her such. Who has thus deceived me? Who has committed this evil in my house, and seducing the virgin from me has defiled her? Is not the history of Adam exactly accomplished in me? 2,000 years ago, somebody knew that Eve was sexually seduced and that Cain was not Adam's son. For in the very instant of his glory, the serpent came and found Eve alone and seduced her, and Adam found her pregnant. The repeat of the history of Adam repeated in Joseph. For Adam, it was for evil. For Joseph, it was for good, to correct that very evil. Just after the manner it has happened to me, then Joseph, arising from the ground, called her and said, O thou who has been so much favored by God, why hast thou done this? Why hast thou debased thy soul? Who was, who was educated in the Holy of Holies and received thy food from the hand of angels? But she, with a flood of tears, replied, I am innocent and have known no man. No matter what we think about this apocryphal book, it can surely be demonstrated to be of great antiquity, and its author certainly knew the scripture and the meaning of Genesis chapter 3. Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. After the sojourn in Babylon, Jeconiah begot Salasiel, and Salasiel begot Zorobabel. Zorobabel rebuilt the temple at Jerusalem circa 516 B.C. And Zorobabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Sadak. And Sadak begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud, and Eliud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Methan, and Methan begot Jacob, or Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Maria, or Mary, from whom was born Yahshua, who is called the Christ. Here we have 13 generations after Jeconiah to the Christ. Little is known of the history of Judea from the days of Ezra and the prophets Zechariah and Malachi to the time of the Maccabees and the accounts illuminated in the history of Josephus, which began circa 160 B.C. Josephus himself says very little about the 300-year period from Ezra to the time of the Maccabees, aside from a brief account of Alexander the Great's entry into Jerusalem and his conquest of Tyre. We know very little about Jerusalem and Judea for those 300 years from Ezra 
to the Maccabees. Verse 17. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham unto David are 14 generations. And from David unto the sojourn in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the sojourn in Babylon unto the Christ are 14 generations. There are 41 men mentioned in Matthew's listing of the genealogy from Abraham to Yahshua Christ, inclusive. While in the Gospel of Luke... The genealogy that he gives in his third chapter of Luke, there are many variations in the list of names amongst the oldest manuscripts. This is not so in Matthew, where the differences are, except for some minor differences, the manuscripts are fairly consistent. I do not believe that Matthew meant to state that there were only 40 men in the ancestry of Christ back to Abraham but only that he was recording 40 men. And the three groups of 14, or, or actually it, it technically is 14, 14, and 13, the three groups of 14 are a poetical device employed by Matthew for literary purposes. Verse 18. This program is going to last till 10 o'clock. Now the manner of the birth of Joshua Christ was thusly, Maria, his mother, being betrothed, promised in marriage or engaged, to Joseph before their consummation, which means before the sexual act, had been found having conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make an example of her, put her desired to put her away secretly. Joseph, of course, naturally thought she was impregnated by another man. And here we see that the phrase, quote-unquote, put away, is a literal rendering of the Greek term for what we would call divorce. And here, Joseph was not even really married yet. It's possible Mary was still living at home with her own family. So we see that Joseph because the marriage wasn't consummated, the term to put away here is has to be used in a legal sense. Verse 20. Then upon his considering these things, behold, a messenger of Yahweh, an angel, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, you should not be afraid to take Maria for your wife, for that which is in her is engendered from of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Yahshua, for he shall save, he shall save his people from their errors. Here it is possible to see the Greek word Jesus derived from the Hebrew words meaning simply, he saves as many Jews claim that it means. And in fact, they even have a, um, a another word that I won't even repeat that, that's actually a curse. That's a very similar Hebrew word. However, I do not... I, I think that this is only a play on words, that it might, in the Greek, when we look at the Greek and look at the Hebrew meanings of similar words, I believe it's only a play on words. It's only a coincidence. 
of the successor to Moses, the Joshua of the biblical book by that name, Yahweh says in Exodus 23, verse 21, talking about Joshua, Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, I believe that Exodus chapter 23 is a dual prophecy. And I'm going to read it again from verse 20. In Exodus chapter 23, Yahweh is giving the law to the children of Israel. And I will read verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before thee, or a messenger, to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to thine enemies and an adversary to thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Now that is true of Joshua, the successor to Moses. I believe it's also a prophecy looking forward to Yahshua Christ. However, that point is moot. Where Yahweh says, my name is in him, that means that Jesus, here it is possible to see that the Greek Jesus, the Greek word Jesus, derived from Hebrew words, verily seems to mean Yahweh saves, not simply he saves. If Yahweh's name is in or on Joshua, then the name is Yahweh saves. And that's why I interpret the name of Yahshua Christ to mean Yahweh saves, and not simply he saves. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 now, all this happened in order that that which had been spoken by Yahweh through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, a virgin shall conceive in the womb, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which is interpreted, God is with us. Now, let me say that this right here is one of the pieces of evidence that proves that Matthew was originally written in Greek. Because if it was originally written in Aramaic and translated, the word would not have to be interpreted. Verse 24. And Joseph, arising from sleep, did as the messenger of Yahweh commanded him and took his wife. Yet he did not know her until she bore a son, and he called his name Yahshua. Now, what's important here is to notice that the text says in the Greek, and they shall call him Emmanuel. And it says here in verse 25 of Joseph, and he called his name Yahshua, as he was instructed. A lot of people try to take this as, as a um, 
a lot of that there are a lot of people even in Christian identity that are harebrained half-assed readers of surface readers of scripture that try to say oh see his name's not Jesus his name's Emmanuel but Emmanuel means God is with us and the angel says and they meaning the people shall call him Emmanuel the angel had previously told Joseph that you, meaning Joseph, shall call his name Yahshua. That's a specific instruction. What the people call him is another story. Emmanuel means God is with us. Yahweh, Yahshua Christ is certainly Yahweh himself come in the flesh as so many other scriptures attest. This is where Leviticus 26 is fulfilled, where it says, where Yahweh says, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. This is how Yahweh walks amongst us, in the body of a man like us. Ezekiel 37, speaking of the second advent of Yahshua Christ, because it obviously hasn't been fulfilled in history, Yahweh says, My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When we read Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, we realize that the tabernacle of Yahweh is the body of of Yahshua Christ, God in the body of a man. As Paul says, our bodies are vessels for our spirits. We all have the Spirit of God, provided we're sons of Adam. Yahshua Christ is a son of Adam, and he is God. He is the Spirit of God. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This concludes my presentation of Matthew chapter 1. I'll be here next week with Matthew chapter 2, hopefully chapters 2 and 3, at least. Praise Yahweh, and good night.